Welcome to the My Psychology Podcast. Thanks for joining us. My name is Andy Pomerantz, and I'm a psychology professor at Southern Illinois University Edwardsville. I also happen to be the author of the My Psychology textbook from Macmillan Learning. In each episode of this podcast, instructors from various colleges and universities join me to talk about the most important and most interesting parts of the chapter to help you understand and appreciate them. As we do, we will share some stories about our own experiences with concepts from the chapter from inside or outside of the classroom. Okay, in this episode, I'm happy to be joined by two other instructors who teach intro psych courses using the, the same textbook, the My Psychology textbook. First, we have Dr. Deborah Roberts. She is a professor of psychology and chair of the Department of Psychology at Howard University in Washington, D.C. Hi, Deborah. Hi, good to talk to you. Good to talk to you, too. And we also have Dr. Alan Whitehead. He's a professor of psychology at Southern Virginia University. Hi, Alan. Hello there. Good to be here. Thanks for being with us. So here's a quick summary of Chapter 8, Motivation and Emotion. The first section covers motivation, which is defined as a desire that stimulates and steers your behavior. It explains the difference between intrinsic and extrinsic motivation, as well as lots of theories, both old and new, about how we become motivated. It also presents Abraham Maslow's classic hierarchy of needs, as well as how culture and diversity variables can influence motivation. The next section zooms in on one motivation that we all share, hunger and eating. It covers issues like being overweight or obese, biological factors in weight like genetics, set point or settling point, and metabolic rate, and it also describes factors in the environment that can influence eating and weight. The last section focuses on emotion, including various theories on how we experience it, research on how emotion is communicated and recognized around the world through facial expressions, and the process of emotion regulation, or managing the type, intensity, and expression of your own emotions. So, Alan, I'll start with you. What jumps out at you from, from Chapter 8? What would you like to highlight? <laughs> well, I have to admit that I'm uh, a little bit uh, maybe upset with you. You put this story in the opening vignette of Derek Redmond. And so I show one of the videos that you find on, on YouTube that's got set to music. And I show that to my students. And I'm over in the corner, like, trying to keep my tears back. And it was just this emotional moment. I mean, it's very powerful, especially as we start to talk about motivation. And sometimes when we think about motivation, or at least my intro students, when they show up, tend to think of motivation as, I'm going to do this big thing. And we forget that it's often, uh, you know, a lot smaller things. I'm going to get up out of my bed in the morning. I'm going to walk down the hall and brush my teeth or eat some breakfast or, you know. And so I really like I think this chapter does a great job of helping us understand the theories of motivation. And I, I want students to understand these are theories. I, I think that's an important thing for students to understand in the beginning is that there are a variety of theories and ways of approaching what motivates us. Yeah, there, there is no single theory of motivation that, uh, that, that we know to be absolutely true. The the state of, of, of this, uh, this area of research, and maybe, maybe the state of, of the truth is that there are many different motivations that affect us when we do the big things and the little things that, that we do every day. I think they can really relate to it because, you know, one of the goals of discussing the theories or the various theories is to understand, as Alan said, why we do things, what is motivating us to do things. And so one of the things that I like to point out is the achievement goal theory. 
it seems similar to intrinsic versus extrinsic. And like we were saying, there's so many different things to explain why we do things. But when you specifically talk about achievement goal theory and you talk about motivation as a means of achieving a goal, I think they kind of perk up. And I think it's important for them to understand that they're potentially different outcomes, at least, the you know, depending on how deep we want to get into the research, just allowing them to see that there are potentially different outcomes if you're a mastery-oriented person versus performance focus, for example. So if you are doing something because you want to do it well, or you want to learn the topic, or you want to have some sort of sustainability, then that's mastery and that's your motivation. But if you are just trying to impress the instructor... (laughs) And it, for example, in the large intro psych classes, I don't take attendance. And I tell them at the beginning, I mean, secretly, we the TAs kind of watch who's there. But I say, you know, you're grown now and your motivation should be to come to class because you want to learn the material. And so I think a lot of them take that as a means of, oh, my gosh, I only have to show up and let her know I'm there or I'll get my friend to sign in. And, and that means I was there. So it's like performance oriented. So I kind of use themselves. I use them as an example for why they might be motivated to do things and specifically to show them that there might be different outcomes. And sometimes I'll bring my graduate students in just to introduce themselves and show the students what might be possible. And it's really interesting to me to hear what graduate students themselves emphasize. So I really like the achievement goal theory. I mean, it's, you know, you you can weave in components of all the other theories, like you said. So, you know, but but giving them one thing to, to sort of sink their teeth into and to see how well it relates to their lives and motivate them to think about what motivates them. <laughs> I think that's interesting. Yeah, Deborah, I, I agree that that is breaking down the kinds of motivation is extremely interesting. And to me, the the the, the basic breakdown of intrinsic versus an extrinsic motivation. In in many cases, it's not. There's nothing wrong with extrinsic rewards, um, you know, to a degree. It, 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 but it always depends. I mean, that's our our standard psychology answer. It depends. But I, I, I think it's important that we understand that the students don't walk away thinking that extrinsic motivators are bad. They're not. But some can be better than others. And and, and again, this idea that once we're aware of the different types of motivators, we can use those things. They're, they can become tools to us to help us move from point A to point B. Absolutely. And I, I wouldn't want students to, to mistakenly think that they should be striving for 100% intrinsic motivation. I mean, in all of our lives, many of the things that we do are done not because of the sheer joy that they bring us, but because they need to get done and other people will either reward us or not punish us as people who are engaged in relationships and families and groups of friends and societies. We are extrinsically motivated to do those things, to get good feedback or good reinforcement from um, positive reinforcement from, from other people. Yeah. Like the example of me knowing that I needed to get up and do my workout this morning. <laughs> So diet and exercise, and that's the key to being healthy. And I, you know, once upon a time used to be in athletics. I keep saying to myself, this should be fun. And for the most part, (laughs) it is when I'm doing it for the sheer joy of it. But when, you know, I go up like a half pant size or something, that is good extrinsic motivation (laughs) for me to get my butt out there and exercise. And as much as I do enjoy (laughs) 
You just say, I feel good about myself. I don't have to worry I'm about I'm telling those myself I feel good, right? That's but a good that's, example. you know, like you were saying, um, Alan, that you're absolutely right. All extrinsic motivation is not bad because it might just be the kickstart. You need to remember how much you love to sweat and, you know, feel empowered and, you know, get those calories <laughs> burning. So, yeah. You're still waiting for that kickstart, Deborah? <laughs> yeah. Can I mention one more thing on motivation before we leave it? If we do, I don't know. Yeah, go ahead. So I, I teach, I also teach a sports psychology class. I think that's a good visualization, this Yerkes Dodson, uh, this, this, uh, you know, this, this bell curve that we look at and, and say there's an optimal level of arousal that we need to motivate or even perform in certain ways. And that too much is, is often bad and not enough is often also bad. Uh, when students begin to understand that, I have so many that will come back to me and say, hey, Professor Allen, I've noticed that uh, you know I was at the, at the game the other day and I could see this happening. Sports is a great place to see it happen, right? It's, it's fun for me to, to be able to show that so they can understand and recognize this, this need for an optimal level of arousal to motivate them. Yeah. I mean, to me, the, the, maybe the, the, the best way to summarize it is that, that extrinsic motivation should ideally complement intrinsic motivation rather than kind of undermining it or, or, or replacing it. They can coexist. You can, you can do an activity for both extrinsic and intrinsic reasons, but the, the key is not to let that an extrinsic motivation take over, which can just sort of erase any intrinsic motivation that you may have had for, for doing that activity in the first place. Yeah. An example I can think of in my own life, I, I've coached my kids' basketball teams, and I know there's one kid in particular who I can think of uh, when, when I think of this intrinsic and extrinsic motivation, a really talented basketball player who I was fortunate enough to coach him for, for many years in a row. He just loved basketball. And then as he got to middle school and he and it was clear that he had a lot of talent and he had a lot of height, his parents started talking to him about how important it is for him to get a basketball scholarship that as he starts moving into into middle school uh he needs to be playing in more in, at a more competitive level and in high school he needs to be competing for for a college scholarship etc cetera, etc cetera. and i could just see his and I, I continue to coach him through most of middle school i could just see his attitude change I mean, he would show up for basketball practice but it was like it was like he was punching the clock for lack of a better word it was like just show up do what the coach asks you to do, go through the drills, learn the plays, execute the defense the way you're supposed to, practice ends, leave the gym, done. You know, another day, another practice, or another day, another game. But there was not joy there anymore. He did not seem to be doing this because he really enjoyed it. My guess is that in many of those cases, a shift from primarily intrinsic to primarily extrinsic motivation is is a factor there. They went from being kids who to love the game for its own sake to being kids who felt that they needed to play the game. They were required to play the game to get something, the approval of their parents or a college scholarship or whatever, whatever may be. So let's take a quick break here. And when we come back, we will continue talking about chapter eight, the chapter on motivation and emotion. The My Psychology Podcast is brought to you by Launchpad from Macmillan Learning. 
When I wrote my psychology, I wanted students to maximize their connection to the science of psychology, and Launchpad does just that. It's the one place where you can find the full ebook of my psychology, features like my take videos, chapter apps, and show me more links, and Macmillan's full library of resources, including videos, flashcards, concept practice activities, and more. Best of all, Launchpad includes the Learning Curve Adaptive Quizzing System, designed based on cognitive research to improve your learning and help you retain information over time. In addition, the Learning Curve algorithm chooses questions based on your performance, delivering a quiz that is unique to you. If you aren't using Launchpad already, you can sign up for a free trial right now. That's right, you can get 21 days of free access right now by visiting launchpadworks.com and searching for my psychology. That's launchpadworks.com. Sign up now for your 21 days of free access and start studying with the Learning Curve Adaptive Quizzing System. Welcome back. We are here discussing chapter eight, the chapter on motivation and emotion from the My Psychology textbook. I'm Andy Pomerantz, and I'm the author of the My Psychology textbook and a professor of psychology at Southern Illinois University Edwardsville. And I am joined today by two other instructors who teach the intro psych class using the same textbook. They are Dr. Alan Whitehead. He's a professor of psychology at Southern Virginia University. And Dr. Deborah Roberts, who is a professor of psychology and chair of the Department of Psychology at Howard University. Another topic from Chapter 8 that I wanted to, to focus on is the, the, the section within the, the larger section on hunger and eating, the, the section on environmental and sociocultural factors. What is it in our environment or in our, our, our culture that affects how we eat? Um, throughout that section, and we're talking about three or four pages of the, of the, uh, the textbook here, there are just so many important things that we often overlook that really do influence how we eat. For example, there's a, a figure in the book, uh, in this, in this section of the book that has some, some text that goes along with it about the availability of fast food restaurants and how there's a strong correlation between the percentage of a population that is obese, uh, in a particular state and the per capita number of fast food restaurants in that state. If a state has more of those kinds of restaurants, fast food restaurants, the obesity rate tends to be higher. If a state has fewer of them, the obesity rate tends to be lower. You know, unless you really sort of zoom out and think about that, it may not influence you. The, the kinds of restaurants that surround you, and not to mention the kinds of grocery stores and other, other sources of food that surround you, can really make a difference in in what you end up eating and, and how much you end up weighing. Lifestyle factors is another one. How, how much you do sedentary activities, meaning activities where you're just sitting, watching TV or working on a computer. And by the way, if you are watching TV, what kinds of ads are you seeing for various kinds of uh, junk food or, or other unhealthy food? How much opportunity is there for exercise in your community? I mean, is there a place to walk? Is there a place to run? Is there a place to ride your bike? Are there bikes available? I know in, in a lot of cities... Uh, in some towns now, there are increasing number of the kinds of bikes that people can rent with their phones, where you sort of grab a bike that's that's around and, and get on it. Some college campuses have it, too, where you just grab a bike, get on it, and ride it to where you need to go. And is that available or is that unavailable? And portion size. A lot of students don't realize that in the United States at this point in time, portion sizes tend to be huge compared to how they were in the United States decades ago and how they are in a lot of other countries or a lot of other places in the world now. So my hope is that as students read through that stuff, they start to realize things that maybe they didn't realize before. Like they, they maybe they didn't realize like 
wow, the portion that I'm being served at this restaurant is actually way more than I should eat or that I need to eat. Or, you know, where I live uh, doesn't give me a lot of opportunity for exercise. So I may have to I may have to sort of force it. I may have to like really search for and, and, and create for myself some opportunities for exercise. Or I may need to search out healthier restaurants than just going to the ones that are that are close by. If you happen to live in a place where, where most of the restaurants that are around or a lot of the food that's available in grocery stores or, or convenience stores is just unhealthy food. I hope it'll be kind of an eye-opening experience, experience for students to read through this, uh, this section. My hope is that students will, will start to realize that the environment and the culture that they live in kind of steers them or nudges them toward a certain way of eating and a certain way or a certain amount of exercising. And if you don't stop and think about it, your behavior in those areas, eating and exercise, can be very significantly determined by kind of what's around, the environment and the culture that you're in. But it doesn't have to be. You can choose, in spite of your environment or in spite of your culture, you can choose, at least to some extent, um, and at least for most of us, the healthiest possible options for yourself. Again, it's not entirely up to us. No one has, has total control over their environment or their or the culture that they come from. But but within those boundaries, you might be able to, to make some some healthier choices if you realize that you've got those options. Yeah, I think it's super important to point out the psychological as well as the environmental and sociocultural factors that can impact the way we eat and what we think what we think as of of hunger versus what we think of as BMI. You know, you've included all the the um, typical things that we tend to think about when we're trying to be thoughtful about about eating or what motivates us to eat and what motivates us besides hunger. But you also include things like, you know, like you said, how many fast food restaurants are around or what marketers are trying to do. I mean, you mentioned Michelle Obama's initiative in here, and I think it's really important for students to understand that, that you, you can counter something that seems to be the norm. So you know, if marketers are targeting you because of a certain demographic, she focuses on children, but there's research to show that there are different types of fast food places or different types of ads, depending on whether you're Hispanic, for example. It's important for you as to be aware of that. Yeah. I don't know quite how widespread this is, but there are some college campuses where if you are a residential student and you have a meal plan, there will be an option at every meal to do an all-you-can-eat kind of meal. In other words, every time you go to breakfast or lunch or dinner, you can just get as much as you want. If you live in a place like that and you're, you know, every time you swipe your meal card, you're walking into essentially an all-you-can-eat buffet, that is an environment that you probably need to think about and make some deliberate conscious decisions about how you might want to limit yourself rather than thinking, well, okay, I, if I can eat as much as I want, I, I, I think I will. And then next thing you know, you've gained a few pounds or 15 pounds or more. Again, I think the idea here is to, is to notice the environment, notice the sociocultural factors that may be influencing you, and then make some decisions about how much you want to sort of let them influence you versus you uh, sort of independently deciding that what you, what you want to do, perhaps in spite of them. I think it's interesting that there, there's this, uh, if I can just mention real quick, this idea that we've been talking a lot about making good choices or, or times that we don't or eating too much. What about the times where we don't have food? I, you know, I, as we, I like to, to talk with my students about this idea of emotion and hunger, 
right? Is that when I don't have food, I get angry. And so we call that hangry. I think we'd be remiss if we left this chapter without talking about Maslow and uh, his hierarchy of needs that I'm sure a lot of students are familiar with the term at least, but I think it's important to take some time to understand where his theory come from and that it actually is a theory of motivation. And Maslow focused on the fact that we have to meet our needs on one level before we move on to subsequent levels. And there is indeed a hierarchy with our most basic needs coming first and then giving us the motivation. Once those are satisfied, then we have the motivation to focus on higher level needs. So if you if you are hungry, and I know we're talking about hunger a little, but if you are or you have been deprived of sleep for a long time, your your motivation <laughs> after pulling all nighters for two nights in a row during your midterms is not going to be to have a kumbaya with a lot of your friends and self-actualization and even uh, bolstering your self-esteem, it's going to be getting sleep, which is a basic physiological need. So once one, your motivation is going to be to get home as soon as possible, get in bed and, you know, however long it takes for, for you to feel that you're somewhat rested because we know we can't, you know, ever sort of compensate for all the sleep we've lost, then then you're going to go to the next level, which is safety, then the next level, belongingness and love and so forth. So, you know, there's a nice little diagram on page 259, but I would say that students definitely need to, to really delve into that theory a little more and, and decide whether they agree with it or not. It's a theory, as we've been saying about much of the other theories. So do they agree with this? But yeah. I just think it's important to at least familiarize themselves with the theory. I agree. I think it's an important uh, idea in this chapter. And I hope students, uh, when they when they read about it, I hope they recognize that they move up and down that hierarchy, up and down that, that rank order list all the time. They're, they're Even within a particular day or a particular part of a day, there may be moments where you're focused entirely on physiological or safety needs. And then other times when you're when those needs are met and you're able to then focus on the higher level needs like self-actualization or even self-transcendence. Sure. So to Dr. Deborah Roberts and to Dr. Alan Whitehead, thanks so much for joining us today. And thanks to all of you for listening. We hope this podcast helps you learn and appreciate the material in this chapter. Of course, you should check with your own instructor to see what's most important in your own class. And for more resources for studying this chapter, check out Launchpad at launchpadworks.com. Talk to you again soon. <laughs>